0: We are going to continue, or actually we're going to finish, we're going to finish our series, uh, our Advent series, God With Us. Um, but before we do, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father in heaven, thank you for um, just your extravagant grace and love and mercy, God, that you pour out on us. God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that we remember and celebrate. God, we do thank you, God, and um, sing because you are, you're with us. Uh, and Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm praying that you would give us an awareness of your presence with us. Would you move freely? Uh, would you move with power? God, would you illuminate the scriptures? God, would you stoke our hearts for greater affection for you? Jesus, we love you. That's in your name we pray amen. Um, I've got a chair up here with me this morning, uh, and that's because I recently had hip surgery. So so I'm going to have to sit down a little bit. So I don't, I just didn't want you to think that I'm not taking it serious. I'm just tired is all. So (laughs) anyway, I just, that maybe that shuts down some emails I get. Why is he sitting down? So um, that's how I read emails that you send to me. "Ah." All right. So we're in a series called God With Us, and we've been looking at all the ways that God is with us in the person of Jesus. And we've seen that um, in Jesus, God's with us as a rescuer. Uh, He's with us in a relationship that leads to the Father. He's with us um, as as our comforter. And this morning, we're going to look at God with us as our King who has authority. The Bible teaches us that Jesus did not come just as a good man or even as a good teacher, but as a saving and rescuing king has reign and authority over everything. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet says this, chapter 9, "'For to us a child is born, for a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.'" In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1, when the angel is talking to Mary, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be... No end. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in the book of Philippians. He says this in chapter 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, says Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, listen to the authority in Jesus here, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on On earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, in Colossians, Paul writes very similarly, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him authority and with a kingdom and with uh, a mission, it's an offensive proposal. In fact, in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, we see Herod, and Herod's the king of, he's the king of Israel. He's under Roman authority. He's the king of Israel. He hears that the king of the Jews has been born, and Herod is extremely threatened by this. But he says to his boys, he's like, love, go find, go find this king of the Jews that's been born. I, I, I'd love to meet him. But what in fact, what Herod wants to do, he's threatened by him, so he he starts a genocide of Hebrew boys um, across Bethlehem. And when Paul is writing about Jesus, he's writing at the time of of, of Caesar, and and in the world at that time, people lived with the basic assumption that Caesar was Lord, because Rome at this time, it's the most dominant empire in the history of the world, the most powerful government that there has ever been. They're known for their military might and their conquest. Um, yet at the same time, the, their theme was Pax Romana, so, so peace and safety. It was the whole idea that Rome, through Caesar, was bringing peace and salvation, that Caesar's bringing this peace and salvation to people. And so Caesar was not looked at like just a man. He was looked to as a god. And if you looked at their money, it it conveyed that idea, all the the art and the statues, and everywhere you'd go, you'd see the image of Caesar. In fact, um, it was said that Caesar was the image of the invisible God. And if you want to know what deity looks like, you would see God in this man, Caesar, There's an inscription from 9 BC from the Provincial Assembly, which is kind of like the legislative branch of the Roman government, that says this. It says, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura, Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of all life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection and has given to us the Emperor Augustus, whom by providence filled with strength the welfare of men and being sent to us as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times he surpassed all the benefactors who have preceded him whereas finally the birthday of the god augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news that word there is euangelion that the word where we get gospel the good news is that caesar has conquered the world bringing peace and prosperity to all That is how Caesar was regarded, as God manifest, Savior of the world. He brings salvation and peace to all men. He brings it through military domination. He brings it through economic prosperity that Caesar Caesar is the Savior. Now, I know it's hard for us to kind of get our heads around a society that would make a political leader their Savior, but believe it or not, it happened. (laughs) Zing! Now, with all that background, with the Herods and the Caesars, the true king has arrived on planet Earth, and he's a threat to Herod and Caesar and the spiritual powers of darkness in this world. And the authority of of Jesus as king offends the Caesars, and it offends the kings of this world, but it offends the Caesars and the kings of our hearts and we're going to see that in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark, whether it's on your phone or, or tablet or you've got a hard copy. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, Jesus as a person or as an idea is not that offensive or controversial. I, I, in fact, Jesus is very popular in culture. So Kanye, Kanye West has an album entitled Jesus is King. Katy Perry has Jesus... Uh, tattooed on her wrist, Kesha has Jesus on her necklace s s thank you i couldn 't use that at eight o 'clock because I just would everybody would have been super confused. Um, the point is that in lots of different places in culture, Jesus is recognized known kind of famous and in and, and other religions even have a prominent place for jesus and people generally know about Jesus. But it's, but it's a Jesus that they kind of make up in their own head, and they want to connect a Jesus that they know on their own terms. The problem with a Jesus that you can manufacture and manipulate is that you can never have a deep relationship with that Jesus because that Jesus can't change you. He can't transform you. Because the Jesus that you come up with in your own head and that you kind of custom fit to you, he can't challenge you. He can't contradict you because at the end of the day, that Jesus, the one that you make up, is you. If you want to be transformed, you, you want the real, true King Jesus, It's not about you making a decision on who you say God is. It's about God revealing himself in the person of Jesus. And the beauty and the joy of Christmas is that we have him here. He's with us. God is with us. And in the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus introducing himself and the kingdom of God who has come in the person of Jesus. And how Mark does this is he takes these different moments and interactions in the life of Jesus and he strings them together to display to us who Jesus is. So Mark chapter 1, look at verse 14. These are some of the first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Jesus gets on the scene and he says this, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, even if you're not familiar with the phrase kingdom of God, you could read those two verses and know that Jesus is walking into the world and what he's saying sounds fairly intense. Because he just shows up and he says, repent, turn around, change. Jesus is saying, I want you to change your mind and I want you to change the shape and the trajectory of your life because a new kingdom and a new king is here. That's how Jesus starts his message and his mission. He doesn't show up with self-help advice. He's saying there's a new era and this new era changes everything. He's not a prophet just announcing a new kingdom. He brings the kingdom with him. The kingdom of God is here, he says, because the king is here. And in light of that, repent and believe. In the next five verses of chapter 1, Jesus starts to pick up his first followers or disciples. Look at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. You see Simon and Andrew fishing, and he says, Follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They immediately, that word immediately is used a lot in Mark's account. He's showing the authority, showing the urgency, the response to Jesus. They leave their nets and and everything to follow him. Verse 19 and 20, he sees James and John. They leave their dad. They follow Jesus. Now, again, fisher of men might not be a phrase that you're totally familiar with. But you can gather from this moment an impression that Jesus has some kind of authority. I mean, he just rolls up. He says, you boys, you come with me. Follow me. And they did. So you're, you're seeing first that Jesus is calling people to walk with him, and their response is immediate and told. They drop everything, and they move with him, and whatever was primary is now secondary. There's a, there's a couple of things that are actually kind of odd about this, if you understood kind of that like culture at that time. Um, first, when people followed teachers or rabbis like this, th- back in the day, they, they didn't leave their trade or their job. Jesus says, follow me, and they drop their nets, and they ditch dad in the boat, and they, they drop everything to follow Jesus. That's different. Second, rabbis in the ancient world, they didn't call their disciples or followers. The disciples picked which rabbi that they wanted to study. It's like when you pick a professor whose class that you want to take. Profe- professors pick you. You don't. Professors don't pick you. You get to pick them. So for Jesus to look at them and say, you guys, you come with me, and for them to actually drop everything and go with him, it's not normal. So when the first readers would read this, they'd look at this and they're like, what kind of person talks like this? What kind of person says, leave everything? Le- leave all your possessions, le- leave uh, your status, leave uh, the name that you've made, leave your inheritance, leave family for the sake of being with me. Change your life. For the sake of being with me, the King. Who does he think he is? In in verses twenty-one through thirty-nine, we get one day in the life of Jesus, and, and we'll just work through this quickly, but they, they walk into Capernaum. And, and Jesus goes into the synagogue and he's, and he's teaching. There's this kind of urgency with Jesus. The, the Sabbath is the day of rest uh, to study the words of God. And the synagogue was the gathering place where the community would come together to do that. So Jesus steps up and he begins to teach them on that day. And the text says in verse 22 that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the scribes and the teachers of, of the law. Jesus shows up, he, t- t- he gives the sermon, and it's astonishing to them because he's teaching with authority. You see, most of the scribes, they'd always quote some other kind of rabbinic tradition that as they were making a point, they would quote somebody else to kind of make their point legit. But what was weird about Jesus is he's not doing that. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but, but I say. And as they're hearing it, they're like, who is this guy who's telling me how the world works and how I'm supposed to operate in the world? What kind of guy teaches like this? And as they're listening, there's this very kind of interesting scene that happens. And verse 23 tells us that there's a man with an unclean spirit that just cries out in the middle of their church service. Verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So even this unclean spirit is recognizing a level of power and authority. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So he's teaching, demon-possessed guy, freaks out. Makes church interesting. Now, notice what happens here. Because the demons freaked out because of the authority of Jesus. Not just because he exercised demon. because that, there's accounts where that has actually happened before. Except when, when those had happened before, there was a, a call to be silent, a call to come out. And then there was um, a, a kind of a call to a higher power. And there were different kind of uh, religious rituals and kind of symbolic things that would, and incantations that would happen. But what's weird about Jesus is he doesn't do any of that. The guy starts to freak out and Jesus is like, stop it, come out, right? So if you're in the synagogue watching this, you have no category for this Jesus guy. It says they're amazed because there's a level of power that they have no analogy for in their experience. And what they just witnessed is alarming to them. And even if you don't fully understand what happened, you know, this guy came in, he starts talking like he owns the place. And then it looks like he actually does. Look at at verse 29. Immediately they left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon, Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law, ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Okay, so Jesus, he's teaching very powerfully. Jesus has power over spiritual forces, But now he shows power over very real, tangible, like real life issues, the physical world. There's fever, sickness in bed. He walks in, fever's over, she gets up, no issues, she starts serving. He just made the fever leave. So who has power over the physical world like that? And as you're looking at these scenes, notice what the people are struck with by Jesus. And Mark does a great job with all the language that he uses to really make this clear for us. They're struck with his authority. Not not with his wisdom or knowledge, which he has, not with his skill as a communicator, he's a brilliant preacher. They were struck by his authority. Even with the miracles, it wasn't necessarily the power, although he has power. It was the authority. This guy commands people as though he has the right to command people. This guy commands spirits as though he has the right to command the spiritual world. This guy commands nature as if he has the right to tell the physical world what to do and it responds. What kind of guy is this? What kind of authority is this? When you think about Jesus, do you think that way? What, what, do, do, what is the, do you think about the word authority? Do you think about Jesus is a king who rules over my life and commands my obedience? Or, or do you see Jesus more as like, he's a good idea to have in your life. He's a nice thing to kind of have added to your life. But he's not the thing. He just kind of exists on the margins, like for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday. Because what they're seeing here, what Mark is showing us, is authority. But in these first two chapters of Mark, they still don't know what to do with Jesus. They're not quite fallen at his feet and calling him Lord yet. So after chapter 1, something happens. His ministry just starts to blow up. People are following but people are still not sure, but they start to do what, what people do today. They start to f- try to find categories or like boxes that they can put Jesus in, again, so they can kind of make Jesus kind of how they want him to be. And at the end of chapter one, people have really recognized that Jesus is a great problem solver. He's a healer. He's got the ability to improve your life. So they start to pursue him for what he can do for them. They, they don't come to him as their Lord or King, but they come to him so he will fix the difficult things in their life. He's the helper for all your problems. And today, that's a box that's very popular with Jesus. Uh, today, he's he's a good teacher. I respect that, and I can call out to him if I have uh, if I have a problem. I'll interact with Jesus when I have a problem that needs healing or fixing in my life. I, I've I've got a, a neighbor friend, and we're talking about God, and he says I I wouldn't say that I'm atheist, but I don't believe in God. Although there have been moments in my life where I've been in kind of sticky situations, uh, and I've definitely called out to him for help. So I was like, I love how. Confused you are. I can't wait for God to save you. Um, but I think that's how, kind of how it is. We put him in the box of like, well, God's there if I need him. W- what's interesting is, is that some people actually use that as a kind Of category to stay away from God because they would say, Well, I understand why you need Jesus because you've got problems, but my life's pretty good. I really don't have any issues, so I really have no need of Jesus. I'm, physically, things are good, family's good, work is good, money's good, success is good. I got all the stuff, I'm really good, so I don't really need Jesus. What's also interesting about this box or this category is that Jesus rejects this box. The whole city shows up at his doorstep for healing, and Jesus takes off, he heads to the wilderness. And Peter's like, hey, man, we got, what are you doing? we got a healing ministry going. we got to really capitalize on your popularity. we we, 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 got, to, we got to get to healing. And Jesus says, no, let's get out of here because I want to preach. I've got a message that I need to get out. Now, Jesus is pro-healing, clearly. We're going to see that. But the miracles are meant to serve the message, which kind of leads to the other box that people will put Jesus in. So if one's this kind of like soft, kind of like healer Jesus, The other is a more hard, like, rule-making Jesus. And in chapter 2, Mark starts to connect all these moments where Jesus is interacting with the religious leadership, the the real, like, rule-keeping crowd. And the religious conservatives are coming after Jesus because he healed someone with leprosy. So the the next five stories are all these religious leaders trying to make Jesus fit into their category, into into their box. They have a set of rules, and if you follow the rules, you're you're in, and if you don't, you're out. And and the theme that kind of ties the stories together is that Jesus, he doesn't want anything to do with their box either. We're not going to look at all of them, but in chapter 2, there's this moment where Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching in a room uh, that's so packed that no one can get in the door. And so these, these guys come by with a paralyzed friend and because they know that Jesus can heal their friend, and so they can't get in the front do- door, so they, they tear a hole in the roof, like you do, and, and they lower the paralyzed guy down into the middle of this meeting. Right in front of Jesus, guy gets lowered down right in front of him. Now, Jesus isn't bothered. In fact, he's, he's going to heal the guy. But before he does, he, he wants to make a point. So he looks down at the guy and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Look, look at verse uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a legitimate question. If you two right down here were having this argument fight, and I just walked down and I said, hey, I forgive you. You'd be like, okay. (laughs) Who cares? Because I don't have the authority to do that. Only God can say that. And so the scribes are like, who does he think that he is? Now catch this, because this is not Jesus' first miracle or his first healing, but he says this phrase on purpose because Jesus is creating a moment and setting up for a confrontation. He perceives the thoughts of the religious leaders and he says to them in verse nine, check this out. He says this, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say rise Take up your bed and walk. And just like you, they're stone quiet. Because that's an even better question. Because the answer is it depends. On one side, saying your sins are forgiven is easier because how do you verify that? Get up and walk. I can verify that. I know if that's happened or not. But in another sense, to say your sins are forgiven, well, only God can say that. So Jesus sets up this moment on purpose because he knows they can't answer that question. So he puts it together for him. And look at verse 10. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Jesus is saying, just so you know that I have the authority to do this unseen thing, I'm going to do this seen thing. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. Only God can talk like that. So he leaves there, and he runs into this guy, Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector, and tax collectors are like the worst of the worst. They would extort money from their own people. So Matthew's a sinner. He's got a bunch of sinner buddies, and the religious guys are like, hey, Jesus, you're hanging out with a bunch of sinners. We're not supposed to hang out with them. So Jesus has this back and forth with the religious leaders, and he always has these fights that are based on his identity. Like, hey, who, who are you really? And then they say to him, you're not supposed to hang out with sinners, and Jesus says, I am because I'm the physician, and I'm here to make sick people well, and your sin is a sickness, and I'm the cure. And then he says stuff like, you know, when a garment wears out, you don't patch it with a new garment, you just start over, meaning all you have an old way of doing things, and I don't fit into those ways, so I'm bringing something that's new And then they come at Jesus about fasting. They say, look, spiritual people fast. We don't eat for certain times. We pray. And they say, you're disciples. They don't fast. Why not? Now, Jesus could have said, he's like, well, you know, they should. It's important because it is. But instead, he says this. He says, they will fast later. But right now, they don't fast because the bridegroom is here. And that is a wildly offensive thing to say. He's saying, you don't fast at a wedding. And the groom is here, so the party is here. And it's offensive because in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, God is always the groom of Israel. Yahweh is the groom. They would fast in hopes that God would come and restore Israel. But Jesus is saying, groom's here. I'm it. So the Pharisees, they come at him again at Sabbath. At Sabbath, and the Sabbath day, they're not supposed to do any work. Um, and the disciples are picking heads off of grain as they kind of walk through the, this field. And the Pharisees are like, you can't do that. And Jesus says, look, your heart is all off. You made religion about following all these rules when it's about people coming to know and enjoy God, and you guys have totally missed it. Now, he could have just stopped there, and that would have been intense enough. But he closes by saying, he says, look, your hearts are way off, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That was extremely unnecessary. But Jesus is not just there to win arguments, he's there to reveal himself as Lord and King. He's saying, look, this religious and holy day that was meant for you to enjoy God, that's my day. That day's about me. In fact, the next time that they encounter Jesus on the, the Sabbath, he's there with a man who has a withered hand. And he says, do you believe um, that it's right to heal on the Sabbath? And they don't. And so he goes, oh, okay, healed, right? What is is Jesus doing here? He's picking a fight. And the fight's about himself, his identity and authority as king. By the end of this chapter, it says that the crowds start to gather to follow him, and the religious leaders are making plans to kill him. And by the time Jesus is done speaking, you're either walking with him or you want him dead. Jesus is saying, I have authority over wisdom. I have authority over the spiritual world, over the physical world, over all religion. You've never seen anyone like me. There's an author, C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis was an atheist who was converted to Christianity. And he writes in this book, Mere Christianity, um, which you should read. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus is claiming to be king and the authority of the universe. And when somebody does that, there are only two responses. Allegiance or rebellion. Allegiance or rebellion. What is it for you? There there is no middle way there is no kind of middle spot that you can pick. He's like, well, I, I think he's, he was generally a good guy. So I'll wear some of his jewelry. I'll get some of his sayings tattooed on my arm. But I don't know about him as king. Because that's not what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for all of my life. is all for Jesus. And every single part of my life, along with every single part of the universe, he has authority over So we have to respond to that. So I want to real quick, briefly, we're almost done here. I want to look at how we should respond and then I want to lean into why we don't. Okay, so what does it look like when Jesus is king over my life? Three things. Three things practically what what does it look like when Jesus is king over my life? The first is obey. The first is obey. Obedience. What we do with our hands and with our feet. How we walk in our life. God commands crazy things like always forgive. Don't Envy or covet, that sex is to be confined to and enjoined in the covenant of marriage, to love your enemies and those who hate you. Those are the commands of the the king. Now, nobody is perfect at keeping these all. A, A Christian knows they need the help of the Holy Spirit. Tyler talked about this last week. They know they need the help of the Holy Spirit to obey and there is grace that frees me from the burden of earning acceptance through activity and it fuels my joyful effort to do what God says. But if God is king, if Jesus is king, I have to obey. Second is submit. First I obey, submit. And this is what you do with your this is what you do with your mind. How you think about the role of Jesus in your life. You see, you have to set your mind that Jesus is either king or consultant. If he's king, then what he commands, I do. If he's consultant, then I've got some wiggle room. And maybe I'll take it and maybe I'll leave it. But he did not come as a consultant, he came as king submit. What do you do with your mind? Even when, especially when the circumstances of your life don't go the way they want. You have to struggle through adversity. In the book of Job, and if you're not familiar with Job, you you should read it. But Job, he has a great life, and then his life gets very difficult. And in the midst of the, where it's really difficult, he he says, he says, you know, I don't sense God's presence. And the things that God's allowing to happen, they, they, they fill me with terror. But, and this quote, He knows my way, and when he's tested me, I will come forth as pure gold. What Job is saying is he's accepting the kingship of Jesus in his life. I don't understand what's going on, but but if I'm faithful in the midst of this, I'll come forth purified. Honestly, yesterday when I was studying this part right here, and I was reading this line I'm about to say to you, um, it really struck me. There's a lot of times when I'm preaching, I was like, I don't do this very well, and I'm going to stand up in front of all these people and tell them they should do this, and this really hit me. Is Jesus still king? Do you still submit to the kingship of Jesus in your suffering when there's physical pain that dominates your life, financial loss, relational loss? All the disappointments, all the suffering, all the pain of this life. Is he still king there? Or is his kingship, for you to submit to his kingship, it requires the addition of something else. You see, if you add anything to Jesus as a requirement for being happy, for joy, for satisfaction, then that's your real king. Whatever you've added to Jesus for, the, for satisfaction, that's your real king. So obey what you do with your hands and your feet. Submit what you do with your mind and then expect what you do with your heart. What you do with your heart, how you incline your heart. If you're too pessimistic about what Jesus can do in your life, then you're not treating him like king because Jesus is the king who can do immeasurably more in your life for the sake of his glory, for your ultimate good. My, my kids in this, in this season, they're, they're, it's the season for asking, apparently. So they're, they're asking all the time. Now, there's a part of that that actually honors me because they're asking because they know that, well, dad's good and dad can, right? They don't know that I can't, but, you know, at least they think I'm good. When you you expect the king, you know that he's good and you know that he's can. The psalmist writes about God. He's like, God, I know that you are good and I know that you are strong. So we expect my heart. My heart is lit up with that you are for me. And so I expect, I expect you, as King, with all authority and all power, will do the thing that is best for me and for your glory. Obey, submit, expect. All those things, they're all components of worship. We worship the King. Now, here's the main problem with all of this, and we're almost done. We don't like authority. We really Don't want anyone telling us what to do. If you've got kids, you know this. Humans do not like another human telling them what to do, or anybody telling them what to do. So if Jesus is trying to be my authority, I don't really want authority. There's a Scottish uh, author and and pastor named George McDonnell. He says this, the central conviction of hell is I am my own. And what he means is that is the one conviction that everyone in hell shares but also, it's the one conviction that creates hell. It's the one conviction that will create a hell in your relationships. That's the conviction that will create a hell in your, in your marriage, in the community, uh, a hell in your life. If you operate on this principle that I am my own and I belong to no one but myself... I am my own king. That is the essence of what every human feels. And the Bible says that we hate the idea of someone who has rights over us and who says that you belong to me and you must do what I say, which is why the Bible teaches that we don't just disbelieve God, but we hate him. Romans 8, the natural mind is enmity with God. We're enemies with God apart from Christ. And the Bible isn't saying that people are hostile towards the concept or the idea of God. What the Bible is saying is that people hate the biblical God, the God that says things like, have no other gods but me. The God that says that I I have to be supreme in your life. And even as I'm saying that, I know some people in the room be like, that right there, man, that right there, it feels like archaic. It feels awful, if I'm honest. It feels completely out of touch. It feels egotistical of God. And that's my point. That's the normal human reaction to the God of the Bible. We hate the God who says that he is king. But if you're honest in your experience in life, you do want authority. We all do, we don't feel it sometimes like when we're getting pulled over. It's not when we're like most thankful for authority. But there are times when we realize I want someone who's in charge. In the midst of chaos, I want someone with authority to step in. My wife this week was in a car accident. Um, she's fine, but their our vehicle was totaled. And when I rolled up on the scene, I was extremely thankful for authority. There, there was a police officer who was in the middle of the intersection because she had hit the thing and the light went out. And he's there and he's directing traffic. And I was very thankful for this guy. Dude almost got killed like four times. Like people were just zooming around him. But I was very thankful For this man with authority, standing there exercising his authority for the good and for the safety of everyone around. There were paramedics and firemen that were tending to my wife and working through the scene and tending to the people there. I was extremely thankful in that moment of chaos for their authority that they were exercising over that. We say we don't want authority until chaos in our life hits. The lordship, the kingship of Jesus is the comfort. It is the good news. All the things we've talked about with that God is with us and how he's with us, the authority of Jesus is the good news. And we are designed to fall under the authority of someone else. And if you decide, no, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one over my own kingdom. Thank you. Let me tell you where that ends up. Selfishness or self-centeredness where your world orbits around you leads to loneliness. Because when you say that you're gonna be your own king and serve yourself at whatever the cost, it destroys relationship. People will not wanna be with you. And if you reject the idea that there is a true king, you'll find a king. You'll find something else that you will adore, that you will worship, and you'll be ruled by something else. You'll be ruled by money, or success, or recognition, or pleasure. Whatever it is, you will worship something. You'll be ruled by something. And none of those things are good kings because they don't care about you and they will abandon you in the end. And you are not a good king either. So what is it? What is it about the authority of Jesus that threatens in your life? What does the authority of Jesus threaten in your life? Because whatever it is, it's sin. It's active rebellion against the king. The authority of Jesus is liberty. You living under your own authority is captivity because you and I, we are bad kings. And a lot of you in this room, you've already lived enough life where you were under your own rule and you already know and you've already experienced a kingdom that has no hope. The kingdom of Jesus, the Bible says, is unshakable. How many of you can say that about yourself? Look at the kind of king that Jesus is. He starts by saying, the gospel of the kingdom of God, that word gospel, it's a combination of two words. The joyful message of the king is this, that he's a king that sets people free. He's a king that heals. He's a king that invites you to walk with him. He's a king that brings joy like a wedding day. He's a king that will make religion about true rest and not trying to earn approval. His kingdom gives you forgiveness that you cannot get or secure on your own. His kingdom brings life, and he's the only person who will rule over you that will make you free. The rule of the true king becomes our true refuge. Let's thank him for that now. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your word this morning. God, thank you for a moment like this where we can open it up. And God, I thank you for your presence and your activity in this place. Um, God, I thank you that you are faithful to dislodge all the false kings off the throne of our heart. God, all the false kings that lead us to places of pain, that always promise more than they could ever deliver, that always take us further in a direction we never want to go, that never fail to fail us. God, I thank you that you are the true king. God, you are the true king who, whose ways lead to life and who is life, abundant life for your people. God, I pray that you would make uh, those of us who follow you um, God, that you would just stoke our adoration and our worship for you. And, God, that it would show up in every aspect of our life. And, God, for those in the room who are not yet, God, have not yet recognized like you as the true king, God, would today be a day of salvation for them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd reveal that even now. We love you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.